Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. Matthew 25. I love Matthew 25. Matthew 25, we're not going to go there. I just figured I'd throw something out there. But you can go there. Matthew 25. It's a wonderful passage where Matthew 24, Jesus begins to talk about the signs of the end of the age. And then in Matthew 25, the beginning of the passage, it says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like. So what Jesus is telling us is that there is a dynamic in the kingdom that at the end of the age will increase. Now, we need to understand, when you read the Bible, you need to know what it said before you can know what it says. In other words, you need to know what it said to the original readers, to those who it was written to, before you can know what it means to the present readers, those that it was also written to, but not as much. So like when we read the book of Galatians, we first need to understand what it meant to the people that lived in Galatia before we can understand what it means to us. Because otherwise, we can get in some weird interpretations. Make sense? So, when, it, when Matthew 25 was written, they were quoting Jesus saying, At the signs of the end of the age will be. Now, this wasn't some irrelevant teaching to them, that some far-off, distant date that was irrelevant to them. It meant something to them as well. But Jesus, and uniquely in this passage, and in several other passages, He tells us that that particular teaching would become even more relevant to those who lived at the end of the age than it was to the original readers. So he's saying that there's something that was going on, it's the nature of the kingdom, the dynamic of the kingdom, it's patterns of the kingdom, that were relevant to the original readers, that would become even more relevant to you and I. That there was a pattern by which God operated His kingdom, that would become increasingly common, and increasingly so, at the end of the age. What were those patterns? He gives us two, two parables. He says the kingdom of heaven is like the ten virgins. And there's a whole lot of teaching in there. Suffice it to say, you can go look at it. I'm not going to get down there. I can get down this rabbit trail. We'll never get out of that hole. It's a good hole, but it's just not this morning's hole. So you got the ten virgins. The kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins. Then he said, it is also like a landowner who goes on a long journey. And so he says, it is also, it, it is what? What is also like that? The kingdom of heaven, when? At the end of the age. So he's saying that there's this dynamic, this pattern in Matthew 25, that God is going to utilize more and more as the end of this age comes, at the closing of this age and the dawning of the next, which will be separated by Jesus' return in the inauguration, the fullness of his kingdom. The kingdom is already here. It's already, but it's not yet. It's here, but it's not here in its fullness. And we live in that tension of the already and the not yet. And so Jesus says, as the end of the age gets closer, there's, there's a pattern by which he's going to operate. And then he gives us this parable. He said there's a landowner who goes on a long journey, so he's going to call his servants to himself, and he gives them each talents. Gives one, five talents, one, three talents, one, one talent. And then it said, he left, and the two immediately put it to work, and the one buried it. You all know this story. And then it has this interesting, even troubling little verse. And he returned to settle accounts with his servants. 
Anytime Jesus comes, because Jesus is the master in this, this parable, okay? He's speaking of himself. God comes, and there's this pattern. We've talked about this before. The, the pattern of this, the template by which you know, that the, kingdom of the, the kingdom of God operates, increasingly so at the end of the age, is this. Visitation, impartation, the master Calls his servants together, claws them close to himself. That's a visitation. He gives to them something of value. It's an impartation. Then there's a withdrawal. He imparts and departs. There are waves to the move of God where God invests in us, withdraws his presence in measure, and it's what we do between visitations that will make or break and disqualify or qualify us for the next outpouring. Okay, I don't have time to really build a case for that. Just take my word for it or go look at some old podcasts from years ago. Okay, so he comes, he visits us, and he imparts. You can never be in the presence of God without picking something up. Something has, is going to attach to you, so to speak. You're, you're going to be able to pick up something of God, whether you know it or not. As a believer, when you get in the proximity of his presence, something happens to you, you can't help it. The question is, will you or will you not do something with whatever you pick up? And depending on your answer to that question, will determine if you're qualified or disqualified to receive more or less in the next visitation. Because he comes to settle accounts with his servants. So he imparts and departs and then he comes again And there is an evaluation. So there's visitation, impartation, in a sense, isolation, because you've got to find something that kind of rhymes. Isolation, and then there's another visitation and an evaluation. What did you do with what I gave you? What did you do in my absence with what I gave you in my presence? That's the grand question. What did you do between waves? What did you do in the hour where it seems like he's no longer there? I was just praying for a precious brother down at the altar, and he's going through the fire. And uh, so he's up here, man, just going after it. And as soon as I laid my hands on it, I just felt like the Lord said, I'm, I'm growing him up, and this is a good thing, because I'm taking him through a season where he can't feel me. And I'm entrusting him with a, a season where I can't be felt, but he's still going to stand strong. And his hardship was, in actuality, a validation from the Father, saying, you're you're, you're mature enough that you can handle this. Because nothing comes our way except that, as believers, if we're walking in obedience, except that God is going to use it. He's going to allow it at some level. Now, that doesn't mean you're supposed to just embrace it. Sometimes God will allow things you're supposed to overthrow. That's a whole other tributary, but we just need to understand that. But there's times where God will lift off that, the, the sense of his manifest presence. Now, we know Scripture is very clear that he's everywhere present. He's omnipresent. But there are seasons in which his manifest presence will lift. I remember when I first met the Lord back in 1983, when I, well, I came back to the Lord after running from him when I was a little kid, and then I got into my teen years and lost my mind and, and uh, ran from God and rediscovered my mind in Jesus at the same time and uh, got saved and then I, I started walking with the Lord, and there were those seasons where I couldn't feel Him. Matter of fact, it was pretty much every morning. I didn't feel saved till about 10 a.m. So I'd get resaved if I just realized that all I needed was coffee. That was the missing link. 
But I would, because I was going by my feelings, you know, I, I saw a meme on, on Facebook the other day. It said, water is one of the most essential elements for life because it's necessary for coffee. I thought, amen. <laughs> but I would get up in the morning and I didn't feel his presence. And so I thought I wasn't saved. And God had to take me through that time and teach me no longer to be dependent upon my senses. Uh, matter of fact, when the Lord first began to speak to me out of Matthew 25, back in 08, God really took me into that passage. And the Lord spoke this to me. He said, I am going to break heartland of hyper-environmentalism. And I knew what he meant. You know, the Lord says something that's kind of weird, but you just have an instant understanding. And what he was saying is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a people who can release breakthrough in the midst of a desert. I'm going to create a people who can release kingdom breakthrough when there is no environmental feelings, you know, uh, that we don't need a good worship set and the air conditioning to release the power of God, that you can do it on the job when everything's going wrong around you, that God needs a people that can release him. They, it can be felt when it can't be felt. You know, that's bad English, but, you know, you can, you can release it even when you're not feeling things. But that makes it necessary that we go through the dry times. But here's the thing. God will visit you. He'll give something of himself. Whether you realize it or not, you've picked something up in the atmosphere. I was having a conversation with someone the other day and Something they said reminded me of my, when I was a little boy, my dad would tell, I, I was raised in a really good independent Pentecostal church up in Duluth, Minnesota. It was a latter rain church, very prophetic. Just, uh, they were known for the moving of the spirit. And Sunday night was the, the night where God would really move because we'd just give them room and we'd sing the, uh, we, we were singing uh, worship chorus. I mean, they were on the cutting edge. They had a transparency machine and stuff early on, you know, but we were, we were cutting edge. And uh, we would sing those chorus, and everybody began to sing in, in the spirit, in unison. And the pastor would just kind of teach people how to navigate that. And it was, it was a wonderful thing. And I didn't understand it. I just, I just thought that was church. And then he'd call everybody forward, and God would begin to move around the altars. And my dad would say, you boys, me, my brother John and I and Christopher and, and my sister, he'd say, you, you guys get down here where God's moving. He said, you don't need to understand what's happening. Just get down there. If God's moving down there, I want you to come down and just stand in it. So we'd be sitting there, you know, looking, wow, look at that. Wow, whoa, you know. And, uh, but he just wanted us to be in that environment because he understood this principle. When you're in proximity to his presence, something gets on you. God begins to do something in you. But we need to learn to steward that in the dry times, and that is an essential element of maturity so that God can send us into the barren places to release the kingdom so they're no longer barren, and you are the deciding factor. But if you can't carry it without the external trappings, then you're not going to be the servant, you're not going to be the mechanism by which God can release it in barren places. So he's got to walk you through some barren places so that eventually you can be the person to change barren places. And so Jesus imparts and there's a sense in which he departs. I'm not saying he leaves you, but you don't, you don't always feel his presence. And that, those are the times of real growth. But there's always the return. It says he returned to settle accounts with his servants. That's a sobering thing, that God 
will always circle back around and revisit us. And what he wants to know is, what did you do in my absence with what I gave you in my presence? What did you do with it? And if we stewarded it and grew it, I used to say, I want to maintain what I obtained, but that's not good enough because that's what the unwise servant did. He maintained it. It was a little dirty because he buried it, but he still had what was given to him. And he was called a foolish servant. The wise servants multiplied it. They invested it, put it to work, and it became more. And the Lord commended them, and the ones that multiplied in his absence what he gave them in his presence, were commended by the master and given more. And the one who simply maintained what he obtained, it was taken from him. And the Lord said, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. It almost seems like a contradiction when you read it. How can I have something How can I have something taken from me if I don't have anything? He says, and he who does not have even what he has will be taken from him. What he's saying is, he'll give you the initial deposit, but it's up to you to steward that thing and begin to grow that thing and get more. So if you don't have something of your own that you have cultivated from the original investment of heaven, then you are in danger of even losing the original investment of heaven. It's a sobering thing. And so God, he returns to settle accounts with his servants. And as we were in worship this morning, I didn't intend to talk about all that, but the Lord just kind of dropped that in my heart. And there were several people that came up to me just kind of picking things up in the atmosphere. And uh, it all kind of aligned to this. And I believe the Lord is here this morning and he wants to settle accounts. He wants us to settle accounts. He wants to wipe the slate clean. And if you this morning are carrying grudges, if you're carrying unforgiveness, if you've been struggling, and I know there's some of you, even this morning that came and said, man, I need prayer this morning. I need, I need some, you know, I just, I, I, I'm holding, there's, there's unforgiveness I have towards someone and I don't want to be there. Hey, that's noble. You're fighting the good fight, but I'm telling you, there's grace from heaven to come up and make the lack and release you from that this morning because the master comes to settle accounts. One of the marks of habitation is that people don't hold grudges against one another. And one of the quickest ways to grieve the Spirit is to hold grudges. As I was standing here this morning, I just this thought entered my mind. Can you imagine us with the things that we get angry at, the things we hold grudges over? Can you imagine? Take whatever that thing is. Take your, the big kahuna that you've struggled with. Whichever, what's your big one, you know? At some time in your life, you've had something you've struggled with forgiving, be it right now or in the past. And stand before the bleeding body of Jesus hung on the cross. And imagine telling him, you don't understand, Lord. This is a big one. This is my my suffering is bigger than your sacrifice. That what you're doing on the cross isn't enough to take care of this. It's a ludicrous picture. Jesus died to absorb the pain of offense that we inflicted on God and we inflict on one another. So much so that Paul put it this way. In two passages, it's in Ephesians and Colossians, he says this same thing, and he really gives us insight into forgiveness. He said, 
Forgive one another in God as Christ has forgiven you. Listen to that. Forgive one another in God as, as Christ in God has forgiven you. In other words, he's saying, the only thing I ask of you, I only ask of you to give to the amount you've received. I'm not asking you to forgive more than you've been forgiven. I'm just asking you to forgive as God has forgiven you. The standard was set by the Father, the standard of forgiveness, and if you'll just forgive like He did, you'll be okay. Matthew 18, we talked about Matthew 18 last week. As a matter of fact, let me, let me just pause here. It was interesting. I, I never realized this until this morning that the word that we've been looking at these last number of weeks, ecclesia, which is what we translate church, ecclesia is only used two times in the Gospels. Matthew 16, the verse that we started this whole series on, where Jesus said, I will build my church, my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says, so he talks about his ecclesia, and then the context is, the ecclesia is going to be the vehicle to overtake hell's gates and rip, rip the gates of hell off and, and you know, the, 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 uh, to displace heaven, hell from the gates of occupation in our cities, our lives, our regions, so forth. The only other passage that the word ecclesia is used in the Gospels is Matthew 18, where it says that when someone sins against you, go to them one-on-one. If they don't receive it, you go to them uh, you take another with you. If they don't receive it, then you take it to the church. And if they don't receive it, then you, take, you treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. The word there is ecclesia. You bring, bring it before the assembly of the saints. I find it fascinating that the only two times that Jesus talks about the ecclesia, because Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom and very little about the church. The epistles talked more about the church and less about the kingdom. It's it's an interesting study. The only time that Jesus talked about the ecclesia, one, he's talking about hell's occupation in the gates, the entry points of, of this world. The other time is when there's sin in the lives of other people. Both of them have to do with spiritual warfare and the work of the enemy. One, regionally, atmospherically, and the other in the lives of individuals. And that's where the, the ecclesia is convened. The, author, the authoritative body of heaven to displace the enemy's activity. And so this whole thing about dealing with sin relationally, let me put it this way, much of what we call spiritual warfare finds its entrance through dysfunctional relationships. Let me say it again. Much of what we refer to as spiritual warfare finds its entrance into our life through dysfunctional relationships. And if we will learn to do relationships in a healthy way, we literally build walls of defense from the enemy's activity within our midst. We can keep the enemy out through healthy relationships. And one of the ways in which we do that is practicing this thing of healthy confrontation and forgiveness. 
And those are the two sides to this thing. I touched on this last week, and I want to I touch on it again, because I really think I felt it last week as we were talking about it. I want to revisit this, because I think it's important for us to realize that there are two simultaneous streams of truth that come to our life from the Scriptures. And different teachers seem to camp out in one stream or the other. And that's largely because of their particular calling. People who are pastoral gifts, uh, even evangelistic gifts, will talk about our need to bear the burdens of others and to forgive. That if you're offended, suck it up, buttercup. You know, and just uh, forgive and, you know, don't, don't, don't be whiny and, and uh, you know, don't make it about you. And, and uh, all of that's true, you know. Uh, I wouldn't say it that way, suck it up buttercup. But, uh, you know, we, we do need to be willing to absorb the offenses of others for, for the sake of unity and the sake of what God wants to do among us. And that's true. But that's a matter of discipleship. And that's why... The pastoral gift tends to focus on that thing because pastors are called to disciple believers and help them get healthy and whole. And so when you're looking at the individual, it's about, hey, learn to forgive. Learn to stand up under the pain of unjust suffering, Peter tells us. Those are, those are real, real truths. And, and I said last week, that's Dan Moeller. How many of you enjoyed Dan Moeller when we've had him in? Dan Moeller is, is awesome. I do, a, I do a cerebral meltdown every time he comes. It, it just, he blows my mind. On the, the revelation he has in living as a selfless individual in the kingdom. Evangelists will emphasize that because they're concerned about the lost. And they're saying, hey, don't demand your rights. Go get over here and just suck it up because we don't want to offend the lost. I, remember, I think it was uh, John Hyde, Praying Hyde. Anybody heard of Praying Hyde? He was a missionary. I want to say it was in India. They say that there were literally grooves in the wooden floors where he would pray. That literally, physically, his heart turned because he was so, he was always hunched over in prayer. And physically, his, his body was altered because of the literal hours and hours he would spend in intercession. I remember reading a story where this guy robbed him and took his clothes. And a few days later, he's out in the marketplace and he sees the dude wearing his clothes. But rather than confront him, he said, I'm not going to confront him lest I become an impediment to him accepting Jesus. I'll just let it go. And that's noble. But if that's how we operated in the church, where we could rip each other off and then we're telling, let it go, you know, that ain't, going to be, that ain't going to make for a very healthy unity in the body of Christ. So when you have pastoral gifts and certain gifts, they'll focus on discipling the believer. We emphasize that thing of, hey, you've got to, you've got to let it go and you've got to absorb uh, the, the dysfunction of other people and just keep your heart right. And it's, it really emphasizes you living right with Jesus and right before men as an example. That's what this, this whole individual thing talks about. But then there's a whole other side to this thing, and that emphasizes the whole living in community, building healthy culture, talking about healthy relationships. And all of a sudden, we start doing teaching on boundaries. Well, wait a minute. What about suck it up, buttercup? You know, boundaries. All of a sudden, I'm going to tell you 
uh, that, that, that's, I, I, this is where I lay the boundary because I've got to tend to my own garden here. I've got to make sure I have what I need so I'm going to be, have something to give over here. And so we start talking about a whole other side to this, this thing of biblical teaching. And all of that is valid as well. And this is not so much living, it's not so much emphasizing our relationship with God, it's emphasizing our relationship with others. It's not so much talking about our witness before men, but our relationship with men. And all of a sudden, we've got to establish, we've got to be willing to confront. We've got to be willing, what Paul says, speaking the truth in love. We've got to be willing to say, hey, that ain't right. Because your behavior is going to affect the rest of the body. And when my self, let me put it this way, your self-denial can ultimately become selfishness. You think, how does that work? How can self-denial be selfish? When my willingness to put up with your dysfunction begins to affect everyone else and begins to pollute the body and I'm still unwilling to confront because it's uncomfortable with me, that is not self-denial, that is selfishness. When my self-denial and willingness to put up with your dysfunction, and the reason I use dysfunction is to me, like, Pastor, why don't you just say sin? Because not all of it is moral. Some of it's maturity. Okay? Some dysfunction is about maturity. It's not about morality. Sometimes it's not that they have a bad heart. It's just they have an immature heart, but they still need to be told, hey, that is inappropriate. You can't do that. And if they still dig in their hills, then what was maturity becomes morality. <laughs> but if my self-denial becomes a cover for your sin or your immaturity or enables you and it gives you a wider space to continue your dysfunction and begin to affect other people, it's no longer godly to deny myself. It becomes godly to assert myself and say, hey, I love you, knock it off. So there's a place for us to assert ourselves and it's because that is essential for body life. That is essential for godly culture. Now, it's one thing. You can be, you can be a really godly individual. That, man, you are a great example of an individual who lives in love and lives before man and lives with God and have really bad relationships in a real dysfunctional family and, and, you know, and, and have dysfunctional church. Because you're, it, it, you're only looking at the lens of, okay, I've got to absorb this because I've got to forgive. I've got to forgive. I've got to forgive. And there comes a point at which, yes, you need to forgive, but you also need to confront and say, hey, this isn't right. And this isn't good. And we can't do this kind of stuff here. Because we're not going to violate one another. We're going to raise the standard of relationship here. We operate by kingdom principles. And the Bible addresses that as well. And Matthew 18 is one of those passages that talk about that. And so Matthew 18 is the other passage in which he mentions the ecclesia of God. And it's convening the body, the authoritative body. And if you weren't here last week, just real quick, a little rundown. We can sum up the idea of the ecclesia with this. It was a, an authoritative body of people that were going to legislate for their region. Legislate the kingdom ideals for their region. The Greeks invented it. They were a true democracy. Everybody had a, had a vote. Then it was the Romans picked that up and they didn't even try to 
Romanize the word. They just continued to use that word, adopted it like they did so many things from Grecian culture, and they instituted it in their kingdom. Matter of fact, there was this, I want to say it was Invectus Civium Romorium or something like Romanorium or something like that. It was a way that if any two or three Roman citizens in a far off land were living, if they got together in the name of Rome, the authority of Rome was with them. It's the same idea that when Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. And with that, what Jesus is telling us is that the definition of the church demands several components. Number one, it demands at least two people. There is no such thing as an individual being the church. You are not the church. There is no me the church. There's the we the church. I am not the church. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I have authority in Christ. There's a whole lot of good things in Scripture. But everything that is applied solely to the church is off limits to me until I lock and load with another believer. And so it demands two or three come and they gather in his name. That means we gather around the person of Jesus Christ. So that means it's more than just us going out bowling together as Christians. Now, you can go bowling and still have church when you gather in his name, you pray, you win or something, you know, I don't know. But, you know, when, when we're really doing it around his name and for his purposes, but it means that there has to be at least two. We're gathering in his name and it has mission tied to it, that we're here about him and his purposes. And the reason that's essential is because the whole thing about the church is God invests authority and power in the church in a measure that he will not invest in the one. If you're not seeing movement on a given subject in your personal life, get with another believer on that subject. Whether it's a need for revelation or a breakthrough in prayer, there's something added when you Put two or three together in his name. There he is. He says, I will commit something to you of invaluable treasure. It's the presence of God. There I am in the midst of them. And in the the Gospels, it's interesting. The two times Jesus talks about that, it's convening the body. It's it's convening the ecclesia to release the authority of heaven on, on the effects of sin. One towards demonic intrusion in the realm of men, the gates of hell. And it's not talking about the location of hell, it's talking about hell's occupation in the entry points of this world, the spiritual entry points. We don't have time to get into making a case for that, but when he talks about the gates of hell, he's not talking about us literally going into Hades and, you know, being transported into the ethereal realm. And It's not talking about, it's talking about hell occupying the entry points. And we can displace hell. We can displace the enemy's influence in our region. And that's what God wants. And, it's the, and in that way, we become the fulfillment of on earth as it is in heaven. That hell's influence is no longer being registered to that degree in our area. The other context is Jesus saying we gather the ecclesia to deal with the sin of a brother or sister. Why? Because the way The primary way the enemy attacks the body of Christ, the church, and thwarts the purpose of the church so it no longer is effective like it needs to be. The primary way, because the enemy, it it was like, the, the enemy can't get in to the church 
without a willing member allowing himself or herself to be the vehicle of entrance. And so the enemy will ride in in the hearts and lives of broken people. And hey, we, th- that's what the church is for. Bring the broken people and let's get them healed. But we don't tolerate the spread of that brokenness and that type of behavior. What Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 is speaking the truth in love. We will in all things grow up into him. We will grow. Corporate growth. How does that happen? Through us speaking the truth and doing it in love. It takes both. Now some of us, we're really good about speaking the truth. We just need to work on the love part, you know. And those people, you ever met them? Well, you know, my mouth's not a bakery. I don't sugarcoat it, you know. I'm just going to tell you, you know, it's like, whoa. And they're like, and, you know, you, you get the truth. You may have got some true counsel, but then you need inner healing from the way they delivered it, you know. And they pride themselves in being really blunt. So they need some love. Wouldn't hurt to make, put a little bakery in the back molar, you know. But then we have other people who are, they're really good at loving but they're not real good at speaking the truth. So like, they, man, it's, I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. Well, by trying not to hurt their feelings in the short term, you hurt them and a whole lot of other people in the long term. And so it's our obligation to step up and speak the truth in love and deal with issues in relationships. And the context of Matthew 18 is, is, is clear. It, Jesus said, if someone sins against you, go to them one-on-one. Deal with things. Don't, don't just say, well, I'm just going to swallow it. No. You go to them eye-to-eye and say, hey, man, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. I, I don't know if you realize you did this, but this is, this is how it came off, or it may be obvious to everyone. And, uh, you know, but we need to talk because I, I want to have a good relationship with you and I'm not going to impose my perception of your motives. I'm just going to tell you how it came off and, man, I want to have a good relationship. I want to be able to give a good report about you, so let's work through this. That's the way you do it. You go in humility. If they don't receive it, then you take someone else with you and you go to them and you work that thing out. And if they don't receive it, then you take it before the ecclesia. That's pretty heavy. But one of the reasons we need to bring it before the church is that so that it doesn't infect the church and it doesn't create a false narrative within the church. There's a danger of false narratives being developed over people's lives. That people that were living in sin and they there's broken relationships, but they're allowed to keep control of the narrative rather than the truth coming out. And when that happens, it skews people's view of God and of how the kingdom operates. And that's not a good thing. You know, the Bible deals with this this concept of good things happening to bad people and bad things happening to good people and the challenge that is to believers. Psalm 73 is one such passage. It says, verse 1, Surely, God is good to Israel. He's not talking to his sister, surely. He's saying, surely, it's a sure thing. Surely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he's establishing a truth here. He's saying that God is good to those who keep their heart pure. The very next verse, he's saying, this is the truth. 
But man, this is the truth I've been challenged with because of what I've been going through. He said, but as for me, man, my foot almost stumbled. I almost slipped. Why? Because I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And essentially, you read through the passage, and I saw the hardship of the righteous. And it really caused confusion. It, 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 I was struggling because I know this is true, that God is good to those who keep themselves pure. But it didn't seem that way. And I was struggling with that. So much so that verse 13 or 14, somewhere in there, he says, In vain I have kept myself pure. Now he's even questioning the original premise. See, things are getting skewed. He's struggling with that. A couple of weeks ago, I called Joel Budd. I just felt led to call Joel. Many of you know Joel. He's, I love, love that man. And uh, just a man of character and has pursued the Lord for decades, gone after revival and never changed the subject. I just love him. And I just felt led to call him about some situations that I, I'd been praying about and hadn't saw movement, and I just, I just felt prompted. So I talked to him, and he told me some stories, and, and it was interesting. But one of them, he said, just off the cuff, he said, you know, another thought comes to mind. And he didn't know the relevancy to the situation I was praying about, neither did I initially. He said, he said he had this encounter with the Lord, and the Lord took him under the city that he pastures in, which happens to be Tulsa. And he said, I went under the ground of Tulsa, and the Lord showed me a giant compass. And he said, but the compass had been manipulated. So north was not true north and south was not true south. Something had been manipulated. And he said, the Lord told me this compass has to do with the times and seasons and the, 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 you know, the seasons of the Lord. It's like the enemy tries to put off what God wants to do by manipulating the compass. And I thought, that's interesting. I, I have no idea what that even means, but I'm intrigued and I trust Joel. So I know he's not lying that that really happened to him. But how do you apply that? And as I was praying about a situation, the Lord reminded me of Psalm 73. And there were situations connected to this thing where there was a person that was going through a hard time and everyone was assuming that the enemy was ravaging that individual's life even though they were living righteous. And right after I'd talked to Joel, I found out there were some situations where they weren't living righteous. That they had opened the door to the enemy to ravage their life. And all of a sudden, I, I can't explain this because I was invested in this situation. I was fasting and praying and crying out to God. All of a sudden, it was like the earth was straight again. All of a sudden, the dots connected and it made sense to me. That's why this has happened. And the Lord began to speak to me about how when we don't deal with sin the way we need to, it manipulates the moral compass and puts the world on tilt. And it causes people to be hesitant to really surrender because, man, if that's how God treats his friends, who needs enemies? And when we look at the prosperity of the wicked, it can, it can twist the compass and we get, get a wrong value system. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, he said, I, I, I almost slipped. I almost said, he said, surely I have not kept myself pure. Or surely I've kept myself pure in vain, he says. So he was saying, man, I'm wrestling with this. It's not worth it. I've lived righteous. I've made, I've been in, a man of integrity. It's not even worth it. And he said, 
Had I said that, I would have betrayed the children of God. He's saying it was in my heart. I didn't release it to their others, but I was struggling until I came into the house of the Lord. And then I saw things clearly in the presence of God. And I saw that the, the unrighteous who are prospering so much right now are like grass. Today they're here and gone tomorrow, like my lawn right now. It's brown. Today, you know, yesterday it was here, today it's not. They look like they're thriving, but they're on thin ice and it's all over. And so God is the one that he's correcting things. He's balancing the scales. And when we don't believe that, or when we think that our perception of reality, when we attribute blessing to unrighteous acts, or we attribute hardship to righteous acts, it twists the moral compass. And one of the reasons that Matthew 18 is so important for the health of the church is that it corrects that. Because when we're not willing to deal with sin and correct things publicly when they need to be, then what happens is it gives a wrong portrayal of who God is. There have been times where I've seen I've known of, I've been part of churches. I was part of a church many years ago. It's not in this state, okay? Many years ago. Matter of fact, I was part of two churches in two different states that did this. They had a guy on staff that fell into sin. And rather than dealing with it and explaining what was going on, they gave him a severance package and encouraged him to get hired at another church. And just pass that dysfunction on to the next church. And they just felt like, well, we dealt with things. And I'm telling you, whether they realized it or not, they spoke something into the air that gave a wrong view of God. And it delayed the purposes of God because they got it, gave a wrong presentation of who He really is. And we've got to be willing to deal with sin. Now, the fact is, Christopher said this to me a few months back, and it really hit me. I thought, you know what? And I was reminded of it a couple weeks ago. He said, you know, Dave, I think that God does Matthew 18 too. I'd never thought about it, but I believe he's right. God operates by Matthew 18. When there's something going on in your life, God will come to you one-on-one. He'll just come to you in the secret place. He's, you know, you, you, you put your Bible down and you get your, your favorite light and your cup of java. You're going to spend some time with the Lord and the Lord will come. And he'll say, I got something to talk to you about. And he puts his finger on that thing. Now, he loves you enough. And God's really, really healthy about relationships. You know, he's pretty good at it. He's highly functional. So if you don't receive it, he's going to bring a friend with you. That's what happened to David. You know, Nathan showed up. He was a friend of God. God says, I don't do anything without first telling my servants the prophets. So one of God's confidants named Nathan, God said, so Nathan comes to David. Hey, David, God and I need to talk to you. And he tells him a story, and David gets this righteous indignation. That man deserves. And Nathan said, you're the man. He said, yes, I am. And what does God say? You're forgiven. Now, because he was a leader, it was exposed publicly. Because Paul does say, expose an elder publicly. So that others will learn. But God will come to us one-on-one. If we don't receive that, he'll bring people to correct us. But if we don't, if we don't receive the correction in private, then God loves us enough that he'll expose us publicly. I'll never forget. And understand when I say this. 
I'm indebted to this man. Jimmy Swagger. He, uh, Kathy and I met at his church. The anointing on that man was, was an amazing thing. We were part of his ministry and God really used him. But unbeknownst to all of us in his church, there were some things going on behind the scenes in his life that he began to struggle with. And God became to, began to come to him. I guarantee you, the Lord began to deal with him. Because I also know that God came to him through some prophets. Matter of fact, one day we were standing in a conference. There was about, I think, I want to say that was the conference where they squeezed 11,000 people into the sanctuary that was built to fit 8,000. It was pretty crowded. The balcony, (laughs) you don't want to sit under it. And uh, it was full of preachers from all over the world that came to this conference. And uh, Brother Swaggart got up and he was talking about how the Lord had told him to build a sanctuary that would seat 10,000. He said, but I didn't have the faith for it. So when he only built for eight. And he said, but we're breaking ground. This, you know, next month for a 15,000 seat sanctuary. And everybody went, woo, you know. And, and uh, all of a sudden, one lone guy stood up. My son, my son. You know, in, in that bigger room, it's kind of like, it sounds far off. It even sounds more dramatic. My son, my son. And he said, I have told you, I have warned you, I have warned you, but you would not. That's all he said. And I'll never forget it because all of us in the room thought he was talking about the lack of faith for not building a big enough sanctuary. And we're like, you jerk. If we'd have had a tomato, we'd have thrown it at the guy, you know. And everybody looked at him and the guy just sat back down. And I'll never forget Brother Swaggart standing there before 11,000 of his own peers. And he just stepped back and he looked down. And he said, let's worship the Lord. He didn't correct the guy. And I've seen, I saw Brother Swaggart correct people. They would give a word out of order. He'd say, brother, sit down. You're out of order. He didn't have a problem doing that. But he didn't correct the guy. He just looked down. He said, let's worship the Lord. And we all got up and worshiped. It was weird. And within a number of months, we got up on a Sunday morning. And there were all the TV trucks, the satellite trucks on the median in the road. We go into the building. And that morning, the curtain was down. It rose very slowly uncharacteristically slow and a gentleman came out and stood at the pulpit and began to announce the moral failure Brother Swaggart had had that went around the world. You could have heard a pin drop in that place and it was devastation and broken heartedness and it was just, it was a hard Sunday morning. And man, I began to look at that word that Sunday morning through a different lens and I thought, what was going through his mind? I'm going to tell you, if you're struggling with sin, respond in the secret place. He's a good father. God does not desire to expose you, but he loves you enough to do so. If you'll respond one-on-one, or better yet, expose yourself. Get with a trusted brother or sister and tell them, hey, this is what I'm... Let's bring the full force of the ecclesia against this thing. I need some help. And expose yourself. And you can avoid the public exposure. But God operates on that because that is good relationship. Because it's saying we're not going to tolerate this type of behavior in our midst. We're not going to tolerate this type of behavior that's going to spread and infect the body because there's too much on the line. We're not going to let the immaturity or immorality of the one be continually absorbed by the others. Now, we absorb it in the sense that we forgive it and we, but we're not going to tolerate it and allow that continue for their sake and for the sake of the body. 
It's an essential thing because what you won't confront, you end up endorsing. You know that? The behavior you won't call someone on, you are actually, with your silence, you are communicating endorsement. And the problem is with a lot of us, we wait a long time to say anything, and then we're like, hey, I don't like when you do that. And they're like, well, you never had a problem with it before, and that's not true, but it sure feels that way to them because you never spoke up because you've tolerated all this time. And so there's this tension we live in in the body as believers that we live a selfless life. It's not, it's not about me being petty and going around and telling everybody, you got to live, you know, you exist for me. Make me happy. You know, that, that, that's not what I'm talking about. We, we live self, selflessly and we forgive. But we also love enough and realize that in order to have a healthy body life, in order to have healthy church, we've got to be willing to say, hey, we don't do that here. That's not how we do life together. That's not how we roll. We're going to deal with these things. Does that make sense? And so it's, it's a fascinating thing that the two times Jesus speaks of that. Now, let's look at Ephesians 4. That was introduction. Okay? We're talking about the church. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul gets into this thing. Ephesians chapter 4 is that famous passage that we... You know, in our circles, we oh, Ephesians 4, Ephesians, we're talking about fivefold, you know. And it, that's usually what comes up in people's minds. But the fivefold exists for a purpose, to grow up the body, to equip the saints for the work of ministry so we can all grow up in maturity. And he insinuates that you can't grow up alone. To the extent that you are isolated is to the extent that you will be immature. Because you will not be able to confront the wrong belief systems that you have when you're in an isolated state. That is true of you as an individual. That's true of us as a family. That's true of us as a church. If your family, one of the sure signs of a dysfunctional family, of, of a family that has some critters, some, some bad things, is the family secret. When, when one of the rules is, what goes on here stays here. You don't tell anybody what's going on in this house. Well, good luck. <laughs> I remember... Years ago, Noah was just a little squirt, and uh, Pastor John came to me, and he said, Pastor, I uh, need to share something with you. I said, what's that? He said, Noah and Children's Church were having a prayer request time, and Noah raised his hand and said, pray for my mom and dad. They're arguing a lot. (laughs) And he told me who the workers were in there, and I said, okay. It hurt, you know. (laughs) But I never said a word to him, because that little boy needed to be able to say those things. And the last thing he needed was a dad telling him, you don't ever say that stuff. Because, unfortunately, could have been the truth, I don't really remember what was going on at that time, but uh, it was most likely wasn't reading the situation right at that time, you know, and I'm sure it was my fault, not my wife's. That was good, huh, guys? Huh? <laughs> he didn't need me to say, you're going to bend the truth for external com- consumption. You don't let people know what's going on. No, he needed to be, have this healthy thing where it's modeled that, hey, when things are going on in the home, we can talk about them outside the home, and that's healthy. Because only then will we have external input to reveal how really dysfunctional we are. <laughs> you know, And so we need that. We need to, 
to be willing, you know, that we, we can't have, so you, it's true of an individual. If you're just, if you're not sharing anything going on in your life, you've heard me say it a million times. What sounds true in a monologue is exposed for the lie that it is in a dialogue. What sounds true when it's bouncing around in your own head? You ever been there? I was talking to a couple preachers on the phone yesterday, and we were talking about that, that, man, I've had it happen where there's things I'm thinking, and I'm sure this is true. Man, I'm getting all worked up, and then someone says, how are you doing? And, well, you know, and, and then I start sharing it with them, and I'm like really embarrassed, like, isn't that dumb? I mean, it's so obvious that's so stupid, but I didn't recognize it till I heard it in my own voice. When it was in my head, it sounded real, but when I say it to someone else, I'm like turning red, and you know, that's kind of dumb. I don't even need their counsel. I just needed them to be the ear it was going to bounce off of. So we need people to talk to. We need to be open. And to the extent that you are open is to the extent that you're going to be healthy. And that same thing is true with our families. To the extent that we can be open about our families and with our families, the extent our family will be healthy. Because you only have so much truth alone and your your family only sees. We see things from our own perspective. You know, that's true denominationally. One of the dangers of streams of Christianity is we have this tendency to think we got it all figured out. Man, I get these journals from these, this Presbyterian journal. Man, they, there's some things that they believe that I am diametrically opposed to, but I read it anyway. And there's some other things that has so expanded my theological perspective because they look at things from an entirely different perspective. And I can say, well, they don't know anything about one, two, three. Well, I didn't know anything about one, two, three over here. And so we need to have that input. And uh, so I need to land this. It is 11.59, and I really never got into what I was going to talk about. But here, here's the thing, okay? Here's, here's the thing, okay? Jesus is here to settle accounts. Not just between you and him. There is grace this morning for you to settle accounts with one another. And I want to encourage you, if there's something going on in your heart, we... we We want another wave of his visitation. Amen? We want him to come again. One of the marks of his his return is that he comes to settle accounts. That's not just the second coming. That is the... I I believe at the end of the age, the revival is going to be so hot and heavy that he's going to say, we're going to still be down here. Jesus, pour out. Come, Jesus, come. And he's going to say, okay, listen, the only way I can come anymore is if I come in person. And he has to come back. Until then... Until then, he comes and he visits us. But if we want him to stay, as Pastor Bob used to say, going from visitation to habitation, one of the necessary components is this. We've got to keep short accounts. Let's deal with things. Because that's how we go from glory to glory. God exposes the very things that are going to hinder us from being able to carry what he wants us to by putting some other person in your life that's going to irritate the snot out of you and that you guys don't come from the same background and it's going to kick some of your stuff to the surface and some of their stuff to the surface. But when we are bound together by the bonds of peace that Paul says, we work through that and we keep going higher. I heard someone say this last week. Never heard this phrase before. Revival and war are running mates. They run together. It's a package deal. Revival and conflict. And if you are a peacekeeper rather than a peacemaker, like Jesus said, a peacekeeper 
ignores things and then they get bigger and bigger and they hurt others. It may be that God entrusted you with that weird thing that's going on in the relationship so that you can correct it before it hits some other people. (laughs) If you're a peacekeeper rather than a peacemaker, then you are going to be real uncomfortable in revival because revival and conflict are running mates. Because when Jesus comes, he starts pushing, you know, moving the furniture around and kind of remakes the house. And we're like, oh, wait a minute, you know. I, I mean, I liked it over here. I liked that piece, but I didn't know you'd go in the bedroom and in the closet and start moving stuff around and meddling with me. And he does. And it's going to bring up stuff. And so we have got to learn to do relationships really healthy. We need to, yes, die to self, but also love one another that we... In love, correct one another. Real quick here, okay? Matthew 18, this is what he says. You know, the, the little scenario, go, go yourself, go with someone else, go before the church. The context of that, the passage before is, Jesus will leave the 99 to go search for the one. What he's saying is, hey, you do this wrong, I'll leave you and go find the one you offended. Well... The next thing is the unmerciful servant that was forgiven much by the king but refused to forgive a fellow servant. So he sandwiches this thing of us dealing with sin in our midst with one another, sandwiches it between these two parables of being merciful when we do so. And so I want to encourage you, as we were singing this morning, but these bones shall praise you. I felt like the Lord said, I've come to reset some bones in the body. These broken bones are going to be reset. And God's wanting to mend some things so that we can stand up and begin to bear some weight of what he wants to release to us. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.